This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. In Movie Land, the fourth book in the E. Ronan thriller series, best-selling author Lee Goldberg's plot parallels a true and recent ongoing investigation that concerns a shooter whose stalking ground is the national park in and around Malibu Canyon. As always, Lee peppers the plot with several possible suspects, dirty politics, investigative shenanigans, and plenty of great detective work by Sheriff's Detective Eve Ronan and her soon-to-be-retiring partner, Duncan Pabone. And as always, you'll be on the edge of your seat until the very last plot twist. Lee and I discuss the depth of his research, his always great dialogue, his spot-on pacing, and how the tension that exists between Eve and her family and her department is the driving force to making her the best investigator she can be. Lee also brings up great insights on ageism in Hollywood. It's not just against actors. And should your book get optioned for TV or film, the best answer you could give producers as to how much you'd like to be involved. What he says may surprise you. Oh, Lee, Movie Land, superb. Thank you. To me, it was uh, probably the most enjoyable of the Eve books. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I was peeling back layers of an onion, like devouring it as I as I go. The challenge of writing that book was to make it satisfying for people who've read the first three, but also have it stand alone so people who haven't read the first three don't feel lost about what's going on. And that always is a challenge as far as exposition. You don't want to bog down the story with explaining details of what happened in previous books. Plus, you don't want to spoil the previous books either. So you got to skirt the edges of what happened in those previous books. So if people want to go back and read them who haven't read them before, I haven't ruined it for them. Right, right. And you did not ruin it for anybody who is already vested in Eve's story. Uh, a matter of fact, there were so many enhancements because of the way you covered it. Uh, each one of your stories has tackled a different issue, but in the same microcosm of her world. And this one, I felt, kind of took it to a different level because of the pacing. The pacing was, I felt like I was there with them. All your, your books are well-paced, but you had a lot of things happening in the other books, whereas this one seemed a little bit more contained because mm -hmm. of the park situation. Um, I want to start with you where the book stops, which is in your end notes. You make it very clear that the fourth Eve Ronan book is based on some very real events. And I'd like you to give the listeners the who, what, where, when, and how that is known thus far in the real world, and then draw some parallels with what happened in your fiction. I don't have all the details of the actual case, but over the course of several years here in Calabasas, and I should mention Calabasas is in the northwestern end of the San Fernando Valley, and it skirts the edge of the uh, Santa Monica Mountains and the Malibu Creek State Park. And in that area of the Malibu Creek State Park, there have been a series of shootings and um, gunfire going off over the years. Someone taking pot shots at cars and at tents and at campers and things. And for years, the Lost Hill Sheriff's Station was saying there was no connection between any of these, that some of those cars backfiring and fireworks and, and the, the shootings that actually occurred were not related. But it came to a head when a young man and his two kids were camping in Malibu Creek State Park and someone shot into their tent and killed the father in front of his kids. Whoa. And so there was a whole bunch of attention on this on this murder. And the sheriff's department continued to insist there was no serial sniper out there. And there's a big community meeting, which I attended. 
where the community was basically saying, oh, come on, how dumb do you think we are? And there were all these people in, in uniforms representing all the different law enforcement agencies that converge on this particular piece of property. It is complicated because the jurisdiction is the um, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. It's the California State Parks. It's LAPD. It's all kinds of, of law enforcement agencies converge in this area. So it creates a lot of complications. Um, but they were very steadfast in saying, this is not connected. Calm down, everybody. It's no big deal. And the lead detective was saying, there's nothing connecting all this. To make a long story short, yes, of course, all the shootings were connected. And the lead detective ended up suing the department uh, because they made him cover up stuff. The captain of the station also ended up suing the department because he was forced to cover up stuff. It, it's been a big, big scandal here in Los Angeles. And they ended up arresting a uh, homeless man who lived in uh, Malibu Creek State Park and had a history of aberrant behavior and he had some military training and and they've they basically said he's the guy it's come to a head um but there's been no resolution yet but it's been playing out over the years so it's always been in the back of my mind that this would make a great eve ronan story and it just finally came to the point where i thought it was my time to tell it and i i took a lot of stuff that's really happening in the community and happening with the case but as i've done with the other eve ronan books which are based on real events i've fictionalized quite a lot of it to make it my own. Right. And and in some cases, reality is so hard to believe. You've got to make it more simple and straightforward in your storytelling so that readers believe it, even though the truth is even stranger. Right. Exactly. You know, we see that in our real world every day. But you kept the reader um, wondering who it could be. You know, um, as always, you do a wonderful job in throwing out, you know, the usual suspects. <laughs> well, I also tied it into other stuff that's happening in Los Angeles County. There's been a, a lot of political corruption scandals here. Um, there's also a lot of issues involving development of land here in, in the Calabasas area. And I just thought it'd be interesting to take all those different events and all those different influences and kind of interconnect them because they are interconnected. You can't separate events from the politics and other stuff that are happening in the, in the area. So there's a chance for me to sort of like throw it all into the pot and stir it up and see see what happened. And also to sort of resolve some of the narrative threads that began in the first book. I thought it was time to tie those up. Um, I purposely left some things untied because I don't like it in books, but everything is tied in a neat bow because life just doesn't work that way. And sometimes it takes a little longer for some things to resolve. So I did have some narrative strands, some mysteries that were unsolved through the first three books. And I basically tied up all of that in the fourth one. So that in a way, I'm starting with a blank slate, not entirely, but uh, a blank slate if there's a book number five. Right, right. Well, let's not say if, let's just say when. I hope it's when. <laughs> it all depends on how the book sells and what the response is to it. Right, right. You know, you sprinkled some gritty Hollywood reality throughout the book, including a suspect to Kim's murder whose sexual harassment put him sort of in the Harvey Weinstein category. Um, how much of Hollywood, uh, you know, it's called movie land, so obviously it plays a very, very big role in the story. So how much more of Hollywood filtered into your story? Well, this is an industry town, just like towns that are devoted to building cars or uh, lumber or whatever. Hollywood is intricately entwined in everything that happens here in, in Los Angeles. And Malibu Creek State Park 
was a Hollywood backlot. A ton of movies were shot there. And also a lot of celebrities and movie makers and business people in the industry live in this area too. So it's impossible to escape the influence of Hollywood. Plus all of Los Angeles is a backlot. I mean, all these TV shows are shot here. So every single street in Los Angeles has been a street somewhere else in the world on some TV show. I can't drive through Los Angeles without spotting places I've seen in TV. So it's inevitable that Hollywood has an influence. Plus, we all carry cameras in our pockets. So any one of us can turn an event into an international media sensation. So it's impossible not to entwine Hollywood into my story, especially when movie making is so steeped in this particular neighborhood. Right. And you also have the situation where, as Eve, although she is a sheriff's detective, her life, unfortunately, is also steeped in Hollywood as it's being turned into a television show. And, you know, all the crime investigative work that she's been doing is being used as examples. Or, you know, I think one of the best lines that I found in the book was where they're having a conversation about, you know, Eve's doing the let's get something back from the lab. And Duncan says, hey, it's not like it is in television where it comes back the next day. <laughs> I mean, you kind of educate the reader that what they're seeing on CSI isn't necessarily what happens in the real world. And I, I kind of like that you picked up on that, you know, and that you're you're throwing it back at them and, and showing what real police work does. Well, I'm also, yes, it's a crime novel, but it's also a, a novel about television. I'm talking about how television shows are created and produced and how we warp reality to make entertainment. And I think it's fun to see Eve struggle without, with how her life is being adapted into television and the compromises they're making in reality to make it an entertaining show. She doesn't like it at all. It's driving her crazy. And so to see her interacting with Hollywood, I think, is fun. But also it shows how Hollywood impacts her. All the detectives here are very much aware of people's expectations of them based on what they've seen detectives do in television. It's just not the way it is. But that's what we all believe, and that's what we expect our real-life detectives to behave like. We want them to be like the impossibly fictional detectives that we see on television. And it's a standard they can't possibly match. And now Eve not only has to live up to the expectations of her colleagues, she now has to live up to the expectations of the media. And if this TV series goes forward, the media portrayal of herself. I mean, it's hard enough just getting by, but trying to live up to a romanticized television version of herself is going to be even harder. But she's forced into it because if she doesn't do it, somebody else will. Her life is in the public domain. And if she doesn't take control of it, she has no control over how she's portrayed and how the stories are told. And she has some financial concerns and the TV show will take care of some of those concerns. And her father is an itinerant television director and her mother is a struggling actress. So there's some family pressure on her to make this TV series happen. So it's, it's a way for me to show other aspects of Eve's life and other aspects of Los Angeles in the course of telling a crime story. Yeah, I, I love the way you bring her family in. You know, you've got this absentee dad who is a TV director, Vince Nyby. And, you know, it really rips at Eve's heart because she'd rather not see him, but he's always on her doorstep because he's always got a favor to ask. And, and this time he had a kind of a pretty big favor that he thought was kind of lock solid. And I, I won't give away what that is because I think it's a thread of the plot that I really enjoy right. because you, you bring up ageism in Hollywood. And it's not just with the actors that get kind of like aged out. You see it, I assume, in the writer's room too. And I've been guilty of ageism. 
In fact, Vince Nyby is based on two directors I worked with when I was the executive producer of Diagnosis Murder, Vince McAbeady and Christian Nyby. And Vince was directing television back to the early days of Gunsmoke and McHale's Navy and, and Star Trek. He's done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of television. And when I was doing Diagnosis Murder, I was trying to really shake up the show, make it more energetic, more youthful. And they had a lot of directors who were just really, really old and not very good. Um, and so I was trying to bring in a more youthful, energized attitude to the show. Even though we had a, an elderly actor in the lead in Dick Van Dyke, I wanted to appeal to a wider audience. And it worked, by the way. The show went from being number 16 in the ratings to being in the top 10. So that worked. But there were some directors we already had under contract, like Vince. And there was an episode we were doing that was taking place in real time. It was taking place in one hour. And it was going to be moving very fast. And I wanted a lot of handheld. And I wanted a lot of energy. And Vince was pretty advanced in years at the time. And he was having some physical difficulties. And I thought, oh, God, we're, we're doomed. <laughs> we're doomed. Um, you, know, you kept telling us anecdotes about working with Big Jim Arness and Ernest Borgnine. And, oh, God, this is going to be awful. And the network was like, why are you using him? You know, you're going against what we want from the show. And I said, we have a contract. And this is the episode you got to sign. The first day's dailies, the, the footage from the previous day's shooting from Vince were absolutely fantastic. You wow. would have thought some you know, 22-year-old kid just out of film school had done it. And I wow. went to Vince. I said, this is terrific. How come you weren't doing stuff like this on the show before? And he said, no one ever asked me to. They wanted you know, the master, the coverage, three people standing on their marks, not moving. I mean, it just, they wanted the old-fashioned setup. He said, I was doing what I was asked to do. And I said, I, am, I feel so bad. I judged you on your age and forgot that the reason you've been doing this so long is because you're so good and you have all that experience. And I signed him for like, I can't remember, 11 more episodes. So the network was like, are you out of your mind? We're almost free of this guy. You signed him for more. I said, because he's a great director. This is why he's been doing this for so long. He was just, he wasn't asked to do more. And he's fantastic. And he was. I mean, the work he did on Diagnosis Murder was terrific. And I felt so bad that I had judged him on his age and his physical ailments and the fact that he had this history, rather than looking at it for what it really is, that this man was exceptionally skilled and experienced. And it taught me a valuable lesson. I never made that mistake again. Wow. Let me tell you, that's a real nugget right there. I have to tell you, because we all have our own vision of, of what goes on in Hollywood. And of course, it's never what we imagine really does go on. But that is true to reality. And uh, I personally appreciate you sharing that with me. I can imagine it's the same thing that we see with writers, you know. Well, writers are different because you can hide behind the piece of paper. If they never see <laughs> the gray in your hair, they don't meet you. And they just read the great piece of work. They're not going to care how old you are. You know, so... I think writers, unlike actors and directors, can get away with being of a certain age. Unless, I mean, you have a situation, uh, there's a, an agent who wanted to represent. Uh, by the way, I've been with the same agent, TV agent, for 30 years. But that doesn't mean agents don't come to me and, and try to take me away. And there was an agent who said, oh, God, we could reinvent you. We'll just take only your last four years of credits and, and get rid of the previous 20. And you know, that way they won't know how old you are. And it's, IMDb, you know, it's not, I'm not hiding from my past. Um, you, know, you look at like Richard Maybaum was writing the James Bond films when he was in his late 70s. 
and they were still the edgiest, best action movies being made. Uh, the guy who wrote the first three Spider-Man movies was in his 70s. It, it, it's not a matter of age. It's a matter of attitude and, and talent. And, and as I said, I think a writer is in a better shape to get away with it than someone whose face is always in front of young executives. Right, right. I also love the way that, you know, when even Duncan meet with the show's executive producer and showrunner, Simone Harper, and her writing team, who are all women and truly diverse, Simone's double speak made me laugh out loud. Uh, you know, like when she says, we want to be true to the essence of who you are and the work you do and tell the stories that reflect both your ideals and real police work. And then Eve looks at her and she goes, I have no idea what you just said. And that's the kind of double speak I spoke all the time when I was running television shows. I mean, I knew exactly what Simone was saying. I mean, I wrote it, of course. But <laughs> even when I'm, I'm saying that stuff in a writer's room or whatever, I'm aware of how absurd because I've, I've been hired to adapt people's books for television, and I've been hired to adapt people's lives for television. So I've been in that awkward position. And now it's coming back on me because my books have been optioned for TV, and in most cases, I'm not involved. What I usually tell the people who option my books is, I will be as involved or uninvolved as you want me to be. If you want me in the room, breaking stories, helping you shape the show, I'll be there. If you want me just to sit at home, collect my check, and wait to see the show on TV, I'll do that too. You tell me. And you know, most of the time it's, we'll let you collect the check at home, which you know I understand because I've done series that were based on books and the authors were, in some cases, an extraordinary pain in the ass. And other times they were great. But I know that you have to let the showrunner do what they need to do to make the show their own. And a writer of a novel sometimes gets in the way of that. I'll give you another example. Um, I optioned a book of mine recently to a major star for a television show and and he and the showrunner took me out to lunch to tell me their approach to the series and then they asked me what do you think and I said it doesn't matter what I think that's the show you want to do and my job will be to help you see that vision through not to hold on to what I did in my book but to help you do the show that you're enthusiastic about that you've got to come in and do every week I'm not going to be precious about my material as long as it didn't turn my hero into a talking dog you know or I mean the changes you made are to make it your own and to tell stories the way you want to tell them. It doesn't matter whether it's the way I would take the character or the stories. And they're like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Like, <laughs> I also love the description of Duncan carrying out the whole aluminum platter of the brisket. <laughs> That's me. All these characters are me. I, it's, I was, years ago, many, many years ago, I'm betraying my own age here. There's a show called Barney Miller starring Hal Linden. It all took place at a police precinct in New York. And the writer, producer of the show was Danny Arnold. And I interviewed him and he said, I'll tell you the secret to Barney Miller. And I said, okay. He said, no matter who you see on screen, the Pope, an Asian person, a black person, a Hispanic person, no matter who they are or what walk of life they're in or what religion they are, they're Jews. <laughs> and, and it's true. It's like, he said, it's, it's Jewish humor. That's the only humor I know. And he says, if the Pope walks in, he's a Jewish Pope. <laughs> it's true. It's, so while I'm writing all these characters, yes, they're individual characters, but in some way, they're aspects of me. So my wife sometimes will read some of these characters and say, I, she's French, and she'll say, you make me very nervous. Did you think this way? <laughs> um, I'm always aghast. You know, you've got this kind of rogue cop thread that you've weaved through the books regarding Eve. And um, I know she's not going rogue, 
Although she just has this tendency to kind of like skirt by the directives of her higher ups. I don't know if she's going to be doing that in the future because she's promised that she won't be. But I mean, I assume that that's a part of her character that she can't tamp down. You tell me. <laughs> My vision of Eve Ronan is somebody who's got an innate skill, but no experience. And she's been put in a job that she is not remotely ready to do. I won't bore the listener with all the details. I'll have to read it to find out. But she got this job leapfrogging over people with far more experience. So she's 26 years old, youngest homicide detective in the history of Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and she has no experience. And so she's constantly having to measure up. And to do it, she has to really push herself. And she doesn't have the experience to draw on. She has to go on her instincts, and her instincts are not well honed. I mean, she needs work. And she makes big mistakes. And that, to me, is the appeal of the character. I didn't want to write another character who was already competent and self-assured and knew exactly what he or she was doing. I didn't want to write Harry Bott. I, I didn't want to write John Rebus. I wanted somebody who was raw, who would grow into becoming Harry Bosch or John Rebus um, or, or Jane Tennyson and Prime Suspect. I wanted someone who had to learn the hard way. And yes, yeah, she's brilliant. She sees things other people don't, but she's under such extraordinary pressure to perform. She has to live up not only to the expectations of, of her colleagues and the media, but of herself. She knows she doesn't belong here. So she has to prove it to herself every single day. And she's pushing herself so hard that it's taking a, a physical and mental toll. And I've had readers say, my God, sometimes I just want to strangle your character. She irritates me so much. She makes so many mistakes. And for me, it's like, good good. That creates conflict. That creates humor. That creates tension. That creates suspense. It gives me a reason to keep writing because I'm, I've written so many books and TV shows about perfect heroes. I mean, not perfect, but you know, Adrian Monk has obsessive compulsive disorder, but he's a brilliant detective and he knows it and everybody else knows it. And, you know, Dr. Mark Sloan, a diagnosis murder, he was the perfect doctor and the perfect detective, a deductive genius who's always right. And if people doubt him, they're making a huge mistake. I, I like that Eve has a, a long way to go. And yes, at the end of this book, she recognizes some of her faults and says, I'm going to try to fix them. Well, how many 26-year-olds do you know who recognize their faults and say, I'm going to try to fix them and then do? I mean, she'll make an effort, but she's not going, if there's a fifth book, she's not going to succeed. She'll be a little calmer. She will learn from her mistakes. She will have licked her wounds and she's had plenty of them and try to do things in a different way, but she'll be under extraordinary pressure and she will crack in her own way. And it won't be an Eve Ronan book if none of that happens, will it? No, I mean, if there's a fifth book, I know exactly what that book is going to be already. And you know, there are some new challenges facing her and these brings out new aspects of her personality, good and bad. And you know, one of the things I wanted from these Eve Ronan books is I was tired of the middle-aged loner cop with the ex-wife or the ex-girlfriend uh, who's got a, he's got a secret past, the serial killer who murdered his family or, or the alcohol addiction or the sex addiction or the people he killed in Nam. I want a character who has no dark past, who isn't a loner. She has a family. She has brothers and sisters and a mother. She has family pressures. And, and you rarely see family pressures among the protagonists of, of crime novels these days. They're, they're always pretty much on their own. With the exception of, say, Stephanie Plum. I mean, Stephanie has an entire family around her, but those are lighthearted 
bounty hunter adventures. They're not police procedurals. I mean, even the books I did with Janet Ivanovich, the Fox and Hair books, uh, I surrounded Kate O'Hare with a, a colorful family because I believe we all have families and it's unrealistic, these characters in books and television who don't seem to have families. They're just all about crime solving. Right. No, I, I hear you on that. That's the way I do my books too. There's a whole family involved. But um, I also want to bring up the reporter that is involved in this particular story is one that kind of, you know, we've seen her before and we know that her role in this, and I know you know a lot of reporters because I noticed in your endnotes you had a lot of reporters in your endnotes. Well, both my parents were reporters. Right. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of know the scoop of what's happening and where it's happening. But this one gets personally involved and takes it on to a whole different level. She becomes the kind of the bullhorn of what's dirty and nasty in the LASD. And that's also sort of based on a real person. There's a, a crusading blogger here in Malibu. Her name is Cece Woods. And she has um, a, a website. I think it's called The Local Malibu. And she really has become a thorn in the side of Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And she's been on a crusade, really, to reveal all the corruption that's going on. And she's never believed the stories they've been saying about. And she doesn't believe the guy they've arrested for the crime is guilty. But she's, she's an interesting character. I mean, so in some ways, she inspired the character I'm writing about. But this character has actually appeared in the previous Eve Ronin novels and is, is an amalgamation of, of many bloggers and reporters I know. But when I decided to start writing about this particular case, I couldn't help but look at what you know, Cece has done. Well, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. But what she has done in her reporting and uh, in her crusade. But who she is and her character in real life is nothing like the one I created. Right, right. And also, which you, it wouldn't have been, but when I look at some of your suspects, too, which I felt you kind of sprinkled them through quite generously, they each had their own little backstory, and it all threads back to any one of them could have been doing it. But obviously, how the story ends up is that it's not what you think it is, even though it is what you think it is. Yeah. What I tried to avoid is linear plotting. A murder for suspects and Cesar Romero did it. I mean, I, I don't want to do <laughs> Agatha Christie. And, and real life investigations are messy and rarely simple and clear cut. So I wanted to show just how complex and messy this investigation is in reality and, and are in, in most real cases. And that what may seem like the right way to go, if you focus too much on that, it's tunnel vision and you don't see all the other possibilities. And there's a real tendency to make all the cases fit so one person gets nailed for it. And that's one of the criticisms of um, the case against this homeless guy is that just some of it just doesn't seem to fit. And it's like, are they shoehorning all this into, into him so they don't have to investigate? Maybe there's still someone else out there who has stopped shooting because they found their person. I don't know. I'm, I'm not privy to the details of the, of the case. He could be responsible for all the shootings. But to some people, it seems like a convenient patsy. You know, maybe he was responsible for this one or that one, but all 18 of them, or whatever number there is, I, I've lost track. Um, and uh, just like with some serial killers, there's a serial killer who says, I've killed 22 women. A lot of other police departments try to close their unsolved cases by heaping it on the same guy and say, there, see, done. When, when no, I mean, we've seen cases in the LA Times where a body that was um, ascribed to a certain serial killer turns out to have been the work of a different killer. They were just eager to get it off their books. 
So there's some of that going on too. And I, I do a lot of interviewing of real life homicide detectives. I attend homicide investigation seminars and I get a lot of feedback on these books. And I've been told that although I've taken big liberties and I, I say that outright in my books, I've, I've fictionalized a lot of the procedures and things in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department that I get the, to sound like the, the producer you were talking about, I get the uh, the essence of it right. I get the the feel of it right. If I don't get the exact paper clip and, and color of the file folder or procedure correct, it feels real and true to people who've been working for the LA County Sheriff's Department for years. I, I can't tell you how often they tell me, my God, you you get it so right. Was this based on so-and-so? It's like, no, I made it up. Um, I mean, for instance, there are no homicide detectives permanently stationed at the Lost Hills Sheriff's Department. They're out in Monterey Park, but it just doesn't work for my storytelling to have them schlep in from way out there all the time. And, and it's interesting because the Lost Hills station has been totally uncooperative. I have never been past the front door. No one will help me there. They've taken a, a real stance at, at making it as difficult as possible for me to get information. I've had to go to the Calabasas uh, City Council to get the information I need from the Sheriff's Department. And yet I have friends of mine who have visited the captain of the Lost Hills station and all my books are behind his desk so he's he's reading it um and, and you know I, i've had deputies you know uh, tell me oh yeah we, we all read the books we, we love them <laughs> well i think there's no better homage to you and your work than to have the real guys taking a peek in to see how well you got them and you know i have a feeling you're getting them well, that's also the other reason why at the end of my books, I go into such detail about my sources. You know, here's the research I did. Here are the books I read, the articles I read. But also to be fair to the people who give me information I wouldn't have found otherwise. You know, those articles that I, I mentioned in the, in the back, I, th I think it's important to acknowledge the people who did your research for you, essentially. Uh, not to blame them. I mean, um, I, I list all the forensic experts and homicide detectives, retired and currently working, who helped me out. But I, I, I make it very clear, don't blend them for the errors I've made. And some of my errors are entirely intentional for the purposes of drama or to speed things up in my storytelling. Right, right. And just like, you know, Eve isn't perfect, but we love her for who she is and the fact that she isn't perfect. And nobody is perfect in their job. You don't make her superwoman. You just make her a woman with a very big heart and a very inquisitive mind and is not afraid to go after what she knows is right about, about her job. Well, I also try not to sexualize her. I mean, too often when men write about women, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's cringe-inducing. It's, it's like it's a sex fantasy you're reading, the way they describe the women heroines. And they always describe them from a male gaze, as if looking at them in a, in a movie rather than getting inside their heads. And I've been fortunate that I have a lot of strong women in my life. Obviously, I'm married. I have a daughter. I have sisters. I have a mother. And uh, I was raised by a single mother, just like... Uh, Eve. In fact, Eve's mom is essentially my mom. My mom wasn't an actress. She was the Paris Hilton of her day in Northern California. She was known for being this party girl. Your party didn't count if my mom wasn't there. So newspapers said, well, since you're there anyway, why don't you write about these parties? So my mom became this very powerful society gossip columnist in the Bay Area and then moved down to uh, Palm Springs, became the society editor of the Palm Springs Desert Sun. As much a celebrity as she was in that circle, she always wanted to be a novelist or a, you know, a famous writer, and she never was. She wrote all these books and never got published. And, um, so she's very much the Jen character in my books. Her name was Jan, 
Yves mom is, is Jen. And my father, I know I've veered off the subject of strong women, but my father was a, a television anchorman on KPIX in San Francisco when I was growing up. And he always talked like this. Even in casual <laughs> conversation, he talked like he was on the air with the same insincere smile I have on my face right now. <laughs> Which is funny for two seconds, but it's, it gets grating after decades. Wow, talk about a facade. To me, it's like um, Vince with his ascot. Yes, it, it is. Um, but I veered so far away from it. But I, I'm aware of how women are portrayed by men in fiction. And I try very hard not to be that guy. And when I wrote the Monk novels, I wrote them first person from the point of view of Monk's assistant, Natalie. And a lot of people thought that Lee must be a woman because Lee Goldberg must be a woman because it was from a woman's point of view and it, it got it so right. In fact, my wife was like, why can't I marry to her? <laughs> you seem to understand <laughs> women when you write those books. How come you're not that way in real life? Oh, too funny. Too funny. Um, so do you have a plot for Eve number five? I do. Good. Good. And I guess maybe in a year we'll be able to see it. Well, it depends. I mean, I'm finishing up another book right now. That's a standalone. That's not an Eve Ronan. That'll come out in early 2023. And if Movieland does well, I would think a, a fifth Eve Ronan would come out by the end of 2023, maybe the very beginning of 2024. It takes me about four months to write an Eve Ronan novel, four or five months. So right. it really depends on uh, when they pull the trigger. If the sales of Movieland are strong enough, they might tell me right away, yes, we want another one. Or they might say, oh, let's wait and see how how it does, or maybe they'll want a sequel to the book I'm writing now. Or maybe they'll say, you know what? We've had so many Eve Ronins come out so quickly. Maybe we want to take a little breather to build up anticipation for the next one. Because the last Eve Ronin came out just this past October. Right. So it's not, it hasn't been that long. It's been, what, six months, seven months. Well, it's funny, too. I, I know it's part of our industry that, you know, if something's hot, they want you on it right then. And um, I, I know you have so many other stories inside of you. I mean, my God, look at your body of work as it is now. I'm very excited that you're doing this other book. I don't even know what it is, but I, I can't wait to get my hands on it because I, I have a feeling it's, if it's anything as layered and as wonderful as Eve, I'll be right on it. It's in the same universe. It's, um, it's called Malibu Burning. And in the first Eve Ronan novel, Lost Hills, there was a big wildfire. This is set during that same period. So Eve Ronan doesn't appear in it, but it's about a pair of uh, arson investigators, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and about an international con man thief who's pulling off this audacious heist in the middle of the biggest wildfire to ever hit Southern California. So it's those two stories kind of colliding, and it, it has some interaction in the, in the sense it's the same wildfire that is in the first Lost Hills novel. So they're in the same universe, and it just is another aspect of the same world. Well, it sounds like something I would definitely love to read then. Just the fact that you've got somebody in there who um, is a little dirty to begin with and you're following that person sounds exciting to me. Well, it's a way for me to marry a police procedural with the big, fun, high storytelling I was doing with Janet and that I did earlier in my Ian Ludlow series of novels, True Fiction, Killer Thriller, and, and Fake Truth. It's a way to kind of, you know, have my cake and eat it too. But also, it's quite possible that down the road, I could have an Eve Ronan novel that has the characters from the book I'm writing now. They can interact in, in the same way that the Lincoln Lawyer and Harry Bosch can cross paths, or um, Irene Ballard and Harry Bosch can cross paths. 
Right. I love the thought of that. I, matter of fact, I was thinking about that when you were describing where it was taking place, the new book, and when it was taking place. And I was thinking, hmm, maybe he'll cross paths with Eve Ronan. Not in this book. There's an aside made to something happening in the Eve Ronan case while this fire is going on. But you'd have to be a reader of, of the Eve Ronan books to even know that that's a reference to Eve Ronan. It's just, uh, you know, a helicopter can't come to busy dealing with some cop in Topanga. You know, it's, it's, you know. It's a throwaway line that may yes. be bigger than a throwaway line. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's nothing about you that's a throwaway line. Oh, thank you. I'm going to put that <laughs> on my tombstone. There's nothing about him that was a throwaway line. <laughs> Lee Goldberg's Movie Land is in bookstores now. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.